welcome to the Hammond High Podcast. I'm Andre Longley and my guest this week is Lamaya Charay. Lamaya is the founder of the All-Party Parliamentary Group for Race Equality in Education, which launched in February. We discuss Lamaya's journey to Hampstead from Nottingham via Cambridge, what it's like working in Westminster, and what needs to be done to improve equality in education. Maya Sheree, thank you very much for joining us on the Hammond High podcast. How are you doing today? Hey, I mean, I'm good, thank you. Um, it's a bit bizarre with, with the whole lockdown situation, but, but everything's good on, on this end. Good, yeah, we're, we're gradually returning to normal, aren't we? Um, we're, we're talking today, partly because um, we spoke before is, um, about your role as founder of the All-Party Parliamentary Group for Race Equality in Education. Do you want to tell us a bit about how you came to, to found that? Yeah, so uh, last year, um, following the, the death of George Floyd, I uh, started my own company called Enact Equality, which is a non-profit organisation that seeks to work with parliamentarians across both houses of parliament um, to draft race equality legislation, to basically advocate for race equality um, in the houses of parliament, whether that be through launching campaigns, events, um, drafting parliamentary questions, uh, conducting policy analysis and so on. So basically supporting members of parliament to advocate for change um, in aid of race equality. And what I found through working with kind of a variety of politicians is that people kept on saying, well, why not just establish an, an APPG at the Houses of Parliament so that you do have a cohesive kind of group in Parliament that is advocating for that mission. And then hence why I thought, you know what, it would be a great idea to launch um, the Race Equality and Education APPG. And, and that's where the idea came from. And well, sounds straightforward the way you say it, but how do you do that? Did you find an advocate who's an MP that would lead the way? Yeah, so, I mean, funnily enough, actually, um, when I was younger, I used to volunteer for an organisation called Operation Black Vote, which is led by Lord Simon Woolley. And um, yeah, I mean, I think it was, was it last year that he was appointed as a member of the House of Lords. And funnily enough, um, he actually ended up sharing the same office that I was working in at the House of Lords. I was working for a, for a num- another member of parliament. And I think, I mean, myself and Simon have kind of spoken about the importance of race equality and advocating for greater change. And I kind of suggested this idea to him. And he thought, do you know what, it's a great idea. He would love to be, to be vice chairs. Um, parliamentary groups have to be chaired by an MP, but he said he'd be happy to be vice chair. And then I spoke with Diane Abbott and she obviously has a huge legacy of, of fighting for greater race equality in education. And she said straight away that she, she'd love to be chair. Um, and through obviously the support of, of Diane Abbott and Lord Simon and Willie, I mean, after that, we had a variety of other parliamentarians who agreed to be involved. And um, yeah, and then we had our first inaugural election in, in February this year. That's brilliant. And, and that's, you know, really fast moving, which is really good. What's the, um, for those of us who are not familiar with the machinations of Parliament and, and Lords, what's the advantage? What can an all party parliamentary group do? So, I mean, all party parliamentary groups can do a variety of things. They can launch inquiries. They can um, conduct policy analysis. They can obviously hold events. They can coordinate with organisations on the ground. They can write joint letters to ministers and they can hold events and meetings with ministers. I mean, the list is endless. They are quite informal groups in parliament. Um, They're not kind of official 
committees like a parliamentary committee for example mm-hmm. I'm lucky with our APPG is that we have um, Kim Johnson MP and David Simmons MP um, as officers of the group so they help lead the group and they, they actually currently sit on the education committee right now so I mean it's perfect them bringing their own expertise um, in terms of where we are right now um, in education and and the issues that are obviously related to, to race equality in the UK. And maybe we should look at a few of those issues. What's what would be the bullet points of things that you that would be the priority? So right now, I know that the APPG is definitely thinking about um, racial bias and teacher assessments as a result of the move from school exams to teacher assessments. And and I mean, we've been inundated with kind of messages and correspondence from people and parents who are concerned that their children may be marked down as a result of as a result of racial bias. So we're looking into that at the moment. Um, Also, obviously, the six week holidays are fast approaching. So we're thinking about child food poverty and the disproportionate impact that COVID-19 has had on um, the financial income um, of Black and Asian households and how that might affect children. So looking at what the APPG, what, looking at what the APPG can do around um, schools, obviously free school meals, um, tackling child po- food poverty and supporting um, children in low income households and lastly um, looking at the provision of IT and IT access um, for children um, from low-income backgrounds as well, and looking at the impact that the pandemic has had on schooling and teaching in that way. Those are our immediate priorities, but we do have a long list of long-term objectives as well. I'm sure that's not it. I mean, it's, it's interesting because those are three topics that really have been um, in uh, have had a high profile in the last year. They have been talked about, but the nature of news is that they appear and then they disappear. That's not to bash the news because you can't just say the same things over and over again. But I guess part of what you want to do is not just to let those things lie, is to really push through and and get solutions. In terms of the, the teacher assessments. Um, Obviously, it's a really difficult problem for the government. Is there a particular approach to ensuring equality that um, you think could be taken? I mean, so for me, the thing is, I think what what I want to make clear is that um, teachers are already under so much stress at the moment. I mean, having to teach throughout the pandemic, maybe online and so on, and, and trying to do that 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 way and then supporting children and then through tutoring. I mean, it's not just about um, teachers, it's about educators, it's about staff in, in um, school and our education institutions and so on. So I think if anything, advocating for greater standardization in teacher assessments and so on, and greater guidance will help teachers and help children. Um, I mean, a lot of statistics do show that that black children in particular do better when examined externally and blindly than they do by the teachers that that teach them every day. And that's that's an unfortunate statistic. But at the same time, what we want to do is take the onus off teachers and we want to simultaneously support children. And by doing that, hopefully advocating for greater standardization will will do both things. Um, In addition to that, it's supporting parents and students so that they understand how to maybe appeal their grades and and what the next steps are in that process. So we're looking at how we can support um, those measures as well. But yeah, it's really about advocating for greater standardization and supporting students and parents in the aftermath as well. And presumably um, the unions, so the teachers themselves, are kind of part of those discussions. 
Yeah, well, I mean, um, myself and Diane Abbott had a meeting, um, I think it was last week, and I know that she's definitely interested in reaching out to the unions as well. We've also been speaking, I mean, in my team um, at Enact Equality, we have a, a legal professional as well, and he's kind of speaking to us about the appeals process and how that works. And then we have a follow-up meeting arranged with David Simmons and Kim Johnson, because obviously they have a lot of expertise in this area as a result of their work on the education committee. So we have a follow-up meeting about that as well. So things are very much underway, despite the fact that we only launched last month, actually, um, but where we've kind of hit the ground running and that's hopefully the momentum we, we aim to keep throughout the rest of the duration of the year. Yeah, it must be crazy. You must have been building up to it and then suddenly find yourself it's, it's wall-to-wall meetings and different people showing up and and a podcast to do and all that kind of thing. <laughs> no, definitely. I mean, we couldn't have expected the the calendars to be as, as busy as it is. I mean, with the launch of the race report and all the all the press stories mm. around race inequality and education and school exclusions and so on. I mean, there's been absolutely loads, but we're just happy that we're that we've launched now and that we can kind of help create change really. The 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 child food poverty um point um Obviously, it's been very high profile and um, Marcus Rashford has kind of put that on the map, as it were. Do you, has, has that made progress, do you think, in the last um, year? I mean, it definitely has made progress, even with the government U-turn. I mean, it just shows that when celebrities and people with real kind of high profiles join causes, they can actually really make a real change. And that's why, I mean, we're, we're very proud at Enact Equality. We have celebrity ambassadors as well. And we definitely want to expand um, that list. But I mean, the point is, is that it shouldn't have to take a huge name and a celebrity that, that shouts about something for it to be noticed by the government. I mean, organizations like Fair Share, like Bernardo's, I mean, the list is endless. That, Child, child poverty action group and so on have been calling for these things for a number of years and I mean it shouldn't take a well-known footballer to um, initiate that but I mean I'm so pleased that he has and he really has made a huge difference and the parliamentary group again um, we want to try and do that I mean the fact of the matter is is that none of these organizations should have to exist right because the government should have policies in, in place that don't allow children to fall through the net but unfortunately that is happening and that's why we do need celebrities we do need charities and we do need um these kind of cohorts of politicians to get together to try and actually create a real change both on the ground and in legislation as well it's interesting isn't it because we're as we speak we're just going into the bank holiday weekend and it's the weekend where sports teams and sports people are boycotting social media to try and force or at least raise the profile of that to force some change and um, I don't know what my question is. It is a tangent, but it's not unrelated, is it? It's it's needing people to stand up and um, to force that change. No, exactly. I mean, it's funny that you mentioned that because we are we are actually in conversation with Twitter at the moment um, about their kind of um, measures that they can take on and offline um, to tackle racism. And I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that there is a responsibility of, of um, social media companies to, to have more robust measures to protect people from online um, race hate crimes, or online abuse, right? But then there also is, is a task for politicians and um, for us on society to actually make change in society as well. Where do these views come from? And a large part of that is, of course, through education. So it definitely is, it definitely is related. And that's why we are in conversation with Twitter at the moment. 
And um, I mean, we really do need to do something because it's also children that, that use Twitter um, or young people, a huge um, number of, of students and young people who are in the education, who are in our education institutions obviously use social media. And I mean, there were news reports, I think it was last week about, about racism online and then schools had to get involved and so on. So um, there is definitely work that needs to be done there. And we are definitely um, open to the idea of working with social media companies to try and advocate for some sort of change online as well, definitely. And I think, I think there's certainly responsibility with the companies, but ultimately they are companies. They are going to work in whatever way works best for the company. So some kind of regulation is needed. And you say, you know, teachers have to deal with it. Imagine, I, I can't imagine being a teacher and on top of everything else, having to worry about what your class is doing on social media at the same time. Exactly. And I think, and to be honest, I think that it definitely is a joint effort that needs to, that needs to happen. But I definitely do think that social media companies can do more. If you look at how very quickly they responded to the COVID-19 pandemic, I mean, when an Instagram post that even remotely references COVID. I mean, straight away, there's like a link there that obviously mm. is automated. And I think, and I mean, I know that loads of black activists have said, well, why can't there be links when it comes to racial slurs or why, why, why can it not be easier to, to tackle that? I mean, we've seen kind of, especially celebrities and activists kind of repost some of the absolutely horrific um, racial abuse that they get online. And clearly these are still being able to filter through the process and it really does affect people's mental health, especially young people. Um, so there is definitely work there for our parliamentary group to do, but then also for the social media companies to do as well. And, and that's why I was saying that we're, we're definitely open and willing to work with the companies to try and, to try and protect young people through education. And it's striking, isn't it, that the, the, the issues are complicated. If you were to um, automate responses to words, then there's issues of free speech or use of the words and things. It's complicated. But the fact is, they've done so little. They've, they've not really made a start on these issues. Whereas, as you say, for, for COVID, which is admirable, they did get the warnings going fairly effectively. Exactly. And I mean, they clearly had keywords straight away with COVID that they could that they could use. And I understand that, that obviously there is the issue of freedom of speech, but I mean, there was also the issue of, of mental health and, and suicide and, and all of that. So you have to, I suppose there are, there are things where you, you do have to prioritize people's well-being. I mean, that should really be the most important thing, especially considering the implications that the pandemic has had on people's well-being and the increase of the usage of social media of young people as well. I mean, there is an onus to protect them and, and more work needs to be done without a doubt. And it's, it's, it's got a strange um, relationship to the third of your bullet points from before about the priorities and the, the access to, um, to, to computers yeah. um, or digital access for, for young people, for parts of society is really important. And, but there's the flip side is that for years, we kind of, in education, it was get off the screens, get off the screens, speak, communicate, get out in the playing fields. And straight away in a flip last year, no, we need the screens. That's the most important thing to getting people educated. Exactly. I mean, it's a very, very interesting kind of dynamic that's being created. Um, but at the same time, I mean, obviously the government has its, has its catch-up programme and, and its tutoring plans and all, all of this to try and help children catch up in terms of education. 
um, but a fundamental part of that is ensuring that people that children have the tools to catch up right if you're um, living at home and you, you might have a laptop but you might not have data you might not have access to the internet or you might be limited to how much data you can use or you might be ch- sharing one laptop with a couple of other siblings I mean how do you how do you balance that and even with me I mean sometimes I might want to work at this time and another time it might be the evening and I want to kind of do some work then and I might and I remember when I was a student I mean the the dynamics in terms of how many hours I'd put in at different at different times of the day and if you're sharing one device um in a household of, of four or five people for example I mean it's going to be really tricky so it's making sure not only that each household has has a laptop and, and data but has adequate provision of IT access as well um it's so it's so so key so um yeah I mean that is definitely one of our priority areas and I know that um an initial response might be well I mean children are going back to schools now so why do you need it but it's also about homework and it's about the attainment gap and it's about the fact that wealthier families can probably have a tutor at home to help their children catch up whereas obviously children from disadvantaged backgrounds won't necessarily have that kind of access so it's making sure that everyone has equal opportunities to catch up and to to access education fundamentally. And to to some degree, last year, a lot of laptops were handed out. So there were various processes, government or charities and things. And I'd imagine Hewlett-Packard and Apple and whatever did quite well out of it because suddenly lots of laptops were going um, to children. But I guess what also needs to be put in place is processes, isn't it? Because in five years time, those laptops are all going to be useless and that the kids will have moved on there'll be a new generation unless there's a process where people have access to um, digital education uh, they'll be left behind again exactly no exactly that's 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 the thing and I mean I know that the government did obviously do do programs where they were giving out laptops but I think research has shown that that the red tape around that was still tricky um, as in um, there might have been households that only that, that I think it was something like I think it was something to do with free school meals and mm. it's an issue with free school meals is when you're if you're just on the on the line of not you just earn over a certain amount and then you don't get access to these free provisions but you are still really struggling but then you're still getting denied and I think that any parent that reaches out for help just and and says that they're struggling, even if their income is slightly over the threshold, they should definitely be supported. And I mean, the red tape apparently for free school meals is something that that I definitely do need that I definitely need to do more reading around. Um, but what I've heard from kind of meeting with with poverty action groups and so on is that it's just tricky for parents to even access um food banks to, to get on the list for free school meals and so on so now i hear that um there are kind of like caribbean takeaways and asian takeaways that are giving free food to their communities and to children and things like that i mean it's fantastic that you see the community come together but again it shouldn't be their responsibility should it because a lot of these small takeaways might not even be making that much profit themselves so to be giving out free food on a daily basis i mean it's just it shouldn't be the case um i mean i'm very proud and pleased that they are coming together to do it but the government the government needs to do more definitely so you're you're in Hampstead now but um, whereabouts did you grow up 
Yeah, so I grew up in Nottingham. Um, so yeah, in the East Midlands and uh, my mum's a single parent. I'm from a working class background um, of Caribbean ethnicity. So yeah, it's very, very different to, to what I'm doing now and to, to where I'm living now. But um, my my family is kind of full of very, very strong black women who have, who have inspired me and who support me in, in everything from my kind of career endeavors to, to my personal life, to every aspect. So um, yeah, I mean, Nottingham is very, very different to, to London, but um, I'm, I'm proud that I've had the experience of kind of growing up in the Midlands and seeing the differences in, in dynamics between there and where I am now. And you uh, presumably worked really hard at school and got your place in Cambridge through that. How was Cambridge? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, I, I did my undergrad at Aston University in Birmingham first and then um, worked in Parliament for a few years um, for yeah for, for an MP and then after that um, did a master's in Cambridge and to be honest I think after working in parliament for a few years I, Cambridge wasn't that different so <laughs> I'm glad that I went at the age that I did um, because I think I was already used to those kinds of environments anyway and I was already pretty headstrong um, by that point and I kind of knew myself and the views that I had so um, I mean I was fine and, and I made some amazing friends there that actually one of them um, was actually helped me launch this this APPG. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's been a, it's been an amazing experience without a doubt. So it's worked out. So that time in Parliament meant you learned the secret handshakes and all the little <laughs> slurred, jargon and all the little signs to look out for. But uh, that's interesting, actually, that, that one of the people that, yeah, that helped you that you've worked with to set this up was kind of through networking through university, which is yet another example of why networking at higher education is is so central to this government and this way this country yeah i mean the thing is i mean he's he's literally like he's my best friend and um he was doing a phd or i think he is still doing a phd on his last year um but he's from a black african background similar age as me similar background single parent and so on so i mean it's it's funny and i think that cambridge is I don't know, sometimes it does kind of reflect the um, composition of society in, in terms of particular social dynamics and social groups. I mean, I know that if you look at kind of my friendship group that I've met from Cambridge, a lot of them kind of reflect certain aspects of, of myself and my own background. So um, I'm, I'm really, really happy that I did meet the friends that I did because they've been hugely instrumental in, in my career today and, and vice versa, hopefully. Um, so we really were able to establish a a core network of people that, that were, again, committed to race equality and to driving change um, that I met through my education there. And I did study kind of, I studied politics and international relations, but I specialized in kind of African politics. So I definitely developed my Pan-African thought through that and learned a lot about the Middle East and, um, and stuff as well. So I think that that was a huge, um, had a huge impact on my career and my political views as well, um, which was really, really useful. So. I think my education within itself has had a massive, massive impact on my career. And that's, again, why I was so passionate about starting an APPG that was focused on race equality in education. And as a, a really important part of that, presumably access to university education is, is vital. Yeah, that and also further education as well, I think, um, without a doubt. I think a lot of people obviously forget about further education. Um, and that definitely is something that we want to push more onto the government's agenda. Um, but access is a huge thing. Like I said, I'm, I'm from a, I'm of Caribbean ethnicity myself and Caribbean young people are the group that is least likely, I think, to attend university. 
um, and I remember myself going to university and very rarely meeting um, people of Caribbean backgrounds um, in comparison to those that I met of other diverse backgrounds. Aston University, I think, is one of the most diverse universities. Um, or if anything, I think it definitely has a very high proportion um, in terms of racial diversity, but I've still found Caribbean students a rarity. So that is definitely some work that we want to do. Um, and we definitely want to work with the government to, to and, and with higher education institutions to, to increase access without a doubt. Was, was politics always your, your aim, your route? Yeah, I mean, it definitely was. Um, like from an early age, I was just really, really interested in in race politics and the dynamics around that from, from really quite early from secondary school. Um, and then, yeah, I think I did some kind of volunteering and then during my undergraduate degree, I studied studied politics and then got um, a placement year internship at the House of the Parliament. I mean, it was kind of just kind of skyrocketed from, from there and then obviously I had to move to London. Um, but my grandma used to live in in London when I was younger, so I kind of remember summers being in Hampstead and just kind of like cycling through the heath and stuff. So hence why I've always I always I always said one day I'll move to Hampstead and then and then ended up moving here. Um, I think a couple of years ago, but but yeah, I mean um, it it was always an aspiration without a doubt, especially to to work in race politics, definitely. And I suppose the big question is with what you're doing now and what the, the, the group's doing, can you can you make this government listen? I mean, we hope so. <laughs> what we definitely do, um, I mean, we have, for example, in terms of the race report, we've already invited Tony Seawold to speak to the parliamentary group. So we're waiting on a response from him. Um, we definitely intend to reach out to Nick Gibb. We've already had Diane Abbott that's, um, that submitted a variety of written questions already kind of um, asking the government what they're doing in terms of tackling race dispropor disproportionality in school exclusions, widening IT access, tackling racial bias and teacher assessments. I mean, I think she submitted maybe nearly 10. Um, so we're already kind of working our way around that. Um, and yeah, I mean, that is exactly what we want to do. We want to ensure that government listens. But in my own personal view, um, there are organisations on the ground that are doing a lot of work around this. So for example, with diversifying curriculums, there are already organisations like the Black Curriculum that go out into schools that help teachers understand how to diversify their curriculums that are creating materials for schools to use. So as the coordinator of the APPG, I'm really passionate about supporting the organisations on the ground to help them deliver that work, rather than kind of sitting back and waiting for the government to listen or waiting for the government to enact policy change. We want to put pressure on government, but also support the organisations on the ground that are already making change right this second. Um, and that is definitely my commitment through, through this APPG. And that is a fundamental part of what we plan to do for the rest of the year. Lamaya Sheree, thank you very much for speaking to us today on the Hammond Eye podcast and all the best for, for the future. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much to Lamaya for speaking to us. Don't forget to like, subscribe and review. We'll be back soon.